Good evening and good day to all of you around the world. We are uh, very happy to host Zim Pickens uh, today, who is a grad student in the South and Southeast Asian Studies Department at um, UC Berkeley. And his dissertation, which hopefully we'll see the end, um, the, the light at, at the end of this year, um, uh, focuses on the history of 11th to 12th century Indian and Tibetan Buddhist preliminary practices, the Mundo. Um, and uh, today he's going to talk um, about some parts of his uh, upcoming dissertation that I uh, am really eager um, to get my hands on. And it's uh, going to concern the rise of the Guru Yoga in 12th century Tibet. Um, yeah, so I'm very happy to be here today and have a chance to finally share some of my dissertation over the last couple of years. Um, just kind of after making a quick scan of the audience, I've drawn from a lot of your work in my own research. So thank you. I'm very grateful for, uh, I couldn't have done that without the you know foundation that you provided. So yeah, the topic for today is the rise of Guru Yoga in 12th century Tibet. So just a kind of quick overview of some of my um, methodology, I guess. So my research, as Daniel mentioned, is on 11th to 12th century Indian and Tibetan tantric preliminary rites. And I sort of, I find the preliminary practice genre fascinating in Buddhist literature because on the one hand, Buddhist authors are very uh, explicit at times that preliminary practices can be done differently in a given time and place. So there's a certain flexibility that is attributed to the genre. And we'll see that an example of that in today's talk. Um, and partially that's because they're just preliminary practices, right? So let's, we can do them in different ways. On the other hand, they have to come first. And there's a lot of emphasis on the necessity of doing preliminary practices. And so I like the tension between those two ways of understanding the genre. On the one hand, they're just preliminary practices. They gesture towards what follows, what comes after. And then on the other hand, they are important, necessary. They need to be done in order to have success in later practice. Okay, so the second point about innovation and, and ritual. So that's a sort of broader theme that I'm exploring in, in today's talk. Buddhist authors, even if they say preliminary practices can be done differently from time to time, they don't necessarily come out and say, well, I'm just making up this particular ritual. That's sort of uh, frowned upon most of the time in, in, in Buddhist traditions. So that raises the question, well, how does innovation happen in the ritual sphere? How does change happen in, in, in these types of practices? And then to kind of gesture towards an answer, one of the main topics we're going to look at today is how Buddhist authors use narrative and scripture to frame current Buddhist practice, perhaps even innovative Buddhist practice as traditional. So we're going to look at a, a couple of examples of that coming up. Uh, and the more specific question for today is how did Guru Yoga come to focus on the Tibetan Lama? And then in introducing this particular question, I thought it'd be appropriate to draw from a, a blog post made roughly 10 years ago by Oxford, Oxford's very own Robert Mayer. So uh, Professor Mayer raises this very same question. In India, with the obvious exception of Shakyamuni Buddha, it seems that tantric sadhanas aren't necessarily, aren't 
or, uh, oriented towards historical figures. They're more uh, focused on bodhisattvas or tantric deities. Whereas in Tibet, we have a, a whole collection of guru yoga rituals that are explicitly focused on a human teacher uh, in Professor Mayer's terms, uh, a human teacher who is identifiable in current or recent local history. So that's the question that we'll talk about a little bit today is how, how did this shift happen where the guru kind of came into the uh, focus in the ritual sphere and then we're gonna to gesture towards how did even the human Lama come to, can come to the fore. Okay, so this is the outline for today's talk. We're gonna look at a few different genres of preliminary practices leading up to guru yoga. So first is 50 verses on the guru. Um, and then another important genre is the foundational practices or adhikama practices. Then we're gonna zoom in on Sakya Pandita's profound path of guru yoga. And finally, we're gonna finish with a little bit of a look at Pagma Drupa and then some of the Kagyu preliminary practices, which also include Guru Yoga. So first, 50 verses on the Guru. So for a long time, this text was sort of attributed to Ashvagosha, and that's now just, you know, definitively been proven to be not the case. Uh, it was composed by Vapali Datta, circa 10th century. And as early as sort of the 12th century Tibetan commentators like Jakpa Gyaltsen and the Sakya school and Tongkhapa, they had identified this author. So, and that's also been confirmed by uh, Peter Schwanko re more recently. Um, all right, so this collection of practices, the Guru Panchashika is a relatively short text, um, mostly composed of bodily practices and social codes. It's meant for a disciple living in or near a household of a lay tantric guru. So a lot of these bodily practices are relational practices for how to act in the presence of a guru. So they include, you know, standing up when the guru stands up, not pointing feet towards the guru, um, not stepping on the guru's shadow, for example. And a lot of these social codes are drawn from earlier Dharma Shastra texts, for example, the laws of Manu. Um, there's also conventions around how to speak in the presence of the guru. You shouldn't launch into long, complicated narratives or sing or tell, you know, boring anecdotes. You should speak gently. You should use honorific terms of address. So, and there's even more prescriptions around making offerings to the guru, seeing the guru as a Buddha, following the guru's commands. So these are all important uh, sort of tantric principles that, that get outlined in this, in this short um, medieval Indian manual. So just, uh, uh, I think it's worth mentioning in passing that also Vapidadatta is kind of collecting these codes and bodily practices um, and that he didn't really also, he didn't make them up of course himself. They were kind of circulating around India at the time, not just within Buddhism, but in lots of different traditions. Um, my interest in sort of why I'm using the 50 verses on the guru as a starting point is that towards the end of the text, it sort of suggests that this, these modes of relating to a guru are, in, are themselves a preliminary stage of practice. Um, so in looking at verses 48 to 49, the text suggests, okay, first give the triple refuge to a, a suitable disciple. And then it says this service to the guru is then meant to be given as a daily recitation. 
you know, it could also mean it's meant to be memorized. In any case, it sort of plays this intermediate or preliminary stage between refuge and then receiving initiation or tantric initiation. So that's sort of why I'm using it in this project as a sort of starting point for looking at tantric preliminaries, especially ones that are focused on the guru. And then also because it took on such a prominent role in Tibetan um, religious culture in the 11th and 12th century. So moving along to a second genre of practice, the foundational practices. Um, these were mostly written in the vicinity of Vikramashila Monastery in Eastern India in the 11th and 12th centuries. Um, there's a number of these compendiums. So basically they're relatively uh, concise collections of liturgical vows, contemplations and ritual practices. In a lot of cases, it seems like they were meant for householders. They're done in a sort of very intensive period of practice. And all most of the compendiums sort of just outline this one period of practice that starts in the morning and, and is completed in the evening. Um, in some cases, they were also probably done by monks. Many of the authors are uh, monks, but sort of the emphasis on this text is that they're for householders. Um, in removal of wrong views is one prominent example of this genre it was, was written by Vayavadra or Maitripa. Um, the, the foundational practice compendium that I'm going to talk about mostly today was written by Anupamavadra. So, and it's called Light on the Foundational Practices, the Adikarma Pradipa. Uh, and more specifically, I'm going to look at this one rite that's really emphasized by this author. Uh, so Anupamavadra really prioritizes this practice called the Guru Mandala, and he introduces the practice with a number of exegetical remarks that sort of speak to its inclusion in this Adhikarma genre. First, I just wanted to kind of highlight the visualization instructions for this Guru Mandala, right? So he says in the middle of the mandala, imagine Mount Sumeru, and then at the center of that sits the venerable Guru in the form of Vajrasattva, adorned with various ornaments. So this is the sort of visualization instructions for the practice. And it's different than many of the other mandala rites in the Adi Karma genre insofar as it really specifically highlights the role of the guru at the center of the ritual mandala. So I'm not gonna go too much more into the liturgy of the guru mandala itself, but I am quite interested in the rhetorical or exegetical remarks that Anubhamavadra uses to introduce this right. So I'm going to go through these um, a little slowly or sort of in depth just because I think they present a very good case study for how innovation can happen in the ritual sphere and how uh, Buddhist authors sort of draw from you know, past scriptures to sort of account for a new way of performing a given practice. Um, so just to kind of reiterate, I don't think Anupamavadra is kind of making up the Guru Mandala practice, but I do think he's prioritizing it in a way the other Adhikarma authors don't do. And then secondly, he's kind of valorizing it as an important uh, daily practice. All right. So let's go through Anupamavadra's arguments for the Guru Mandala kind of step by step. So he starts out by saying, well, you should actually do the Guru Mandala first before the other one, meaning the deity mandala. Um, and then, so he introduces this kind of uh, 
dialogical kind of format where he introduces the hypothetical objections of an interlocutor. So that is the sort of way that he introduces the Guru Mandala, right? So now the interlocutor says, well, why is it that the Guru Mandala should be done at the very beginning? And Anupama Bhadra says, you know, he, he equates the Guru with all the Buddhas. He says the Buddha is the the guru is the Buddha, the guru is the Dharma, the guru is the Sangha. So he's saying, okay, it's suitable to worship the guru in the beginning because the guru has such an exalted status. Now the interlocutor says here, well, I don't think so. All of that was spoken by the Buddha to point out that the guru has the distinction of a great man, but not to make a mandala. So he's kind of suggesting that Anupama Vajra is taking some of these citations out of context and that they might be used to sort of celebrate the guru, but not to, you know, not, in, not to present this uh, guru mandala, right? Incorrect, says Anupama Vajra. Says the Buddha explains it at length in the Kalachakra Tantra. I wasn't able to find it there necessarily, but I, I should look into it a little bit more. The interlocutor says, mm, well, maybe so, but that was actually just for the beginning of a practice. Maybe in that case, you should imagine the guru in the manner of a Buddha so that you have devotion when you're listening to the teachings. And then again, Anubhava Vajra says, no, it's not like that either. And now he goes on a very long sort of passage that is meant to really emphasize that the guru mandala isn't just for a restricted context. It's not just for at the beginning of a teaching or some other ritual context. It's really supposed to be a daily practice in this Adikarma genre. I'm not going to read through this whole long citation, but I'm, I highlighted the passages that come that are also found in the Guru Panchashika, the 50 verses on the Guru, just to give a little bit of an indication of how he, how Anupama Bhadra is drawing from that text to make his case for the Guru Mandala. In other words, he's drawing on the sort of social codes or bodily practices uh, for relating to a guru in person, but he's using them to support this idea of worshiping the guru in a ritual manner in a, or in a ritual idiom. So mostly he's really emphasizing the need to make offerings to the guru, which was a topic in 50 verses, but he's really saying the guru mandala does the best job of, you know, accomplishing that task. And he even sort of interspersed with the passages from the 50 verses are shorter passages that sort of explain the Guru Mandala offering itself. So finally, this is, will be our last slide with the Anubhama Vajra. He, he, he takes the six perfections, you know, very well-known sort of category of, of Buddhist ethics uh, and says, well, those two are also fulfilled through performing the Guru Mandala. So generosity is using the appropriate substances in the right, cow dung mixed with water, Morality is smearing the area with that. Patience is removing tiny bugs. So each step in the ritual process fulfills one of these perfections. And finally, he's, he claims that having made this mandala of the sage, these very six perfections are obtained. Again, and this is the final sort of interjection from the interlocutor. The interlocutor says, well, Look at a little closely, you said having made the model of the sage is being used to designate, but that's not quite right because what you're actually saying is the guru, not, not the Buddha. Uh, it's not the model of the sage you're promoting. In other words, it's the model of the guru. And finally, Anubhava Mavadra draws from the 50 verses a final time and says, 
just like it says there, do not draw any distinction whatsoever between the Guru and Vajradhara, the Guru Mandala also brings about these very same qualities. So just to kind of recap, he, Anupama Vajra takes a lot from 50 verses on the Guru in, in earlier Indian Buddhist text and sort of uses these passages to support his presentation of the Guru Mandala as being a daily practice for imagining the Guru at the center of the Mandala in the manner of a Buddha and um, using that as a way of making offerings. So that's uh, the Guru Mandala in a nutshell. Now we'll move on into Tibet, into the um, 12th century Tibet in a text by a Sakya Lama named Sakya Pandita, very famous Lama, but he also wrote a less well-known text on Guru Yoga. So it's called The Profound Path of Guru Yoga. And he's, he's pictured here with his uh, uncle, who's going to be a prominent figure in this, in this text, Drakpa Gelsen, was Sakya Pandita's uncle, and also his teacher or his uh, Lama. So this will, this will be the sort of second case study. And in a similar way to Anupama Vajra, Sakya Pandita introduces the Guru, Guru Yoga, right? with scriptural citations, with narratives, and also with autobiographical narratives. So he introduces a, um, a lot of material before he actually talks about the, the, the short practice itself. Um, so we're going to go through some of that. So he, Sakya Pandita begins with a series of scriptural citations that account for the importance of the guru on the tantric path. That was not controversial. Uh, but and then he next, he cites a, a number of Indic stories on the theme of seeing the guru as a Buddha, even when engaged in transgressive acts. So for, you know, for, for scholars of, of tantric Buddhism, this, these types of narratives are very well known. But Sakya Pandita kind of draws on a number of them nonetheless. So he talks about anecdotes and stories where a disciple or you know, even a, just a sort of wannabe disciple meets a guru, but the guru isn't, you know, sitting on a throne and then teaching or talking about philosophy or talking about meditation. They're doing more ordinary things, for example, like farming or taking care of horses, taking care of pigs, selling beer even. He cites the famous example of Naropa and Talopa. Naropa meets Talopa, you know, acting like a crazy person and killing fish and frying them sitting on the riverbanks. And so Sakya Pandita invokes all of these stories to, to sort of introduce the idea, well, it's important to see the guru as a Buddha, even when they're engaged in such surprising behavior. In other words, just because they're acting sort of in unexpected ways, it's, it's still incumbent on the disciple to really see them as a Buddha in a, in a pure way. And then he follows that sort of passage by introducing the idea of hardships. It's another sort of well-known category where disciples sort of undertake a stage of relating to the guru where they follow their commands and even are transgress ethical, con you know, ethical conduct or engage in different kinds of surprising behavior themselves in, in following the commands of the guru. 
So Sakya Bandita frames this as a preliminary stage of practice that needs to be done for a certain period of time. And again, he provides a number of different examples on this topic. So for example, he says Naropa followed around Tulopa for 12 years and did all kinds of difficult things. Um, Advayavadra undertook the superior conduct at Lakparchupa for one year. And he provides different examples of the hardships that were uh, experienced by these disciples in, in following the commands of the guru, even in some cases getting beaten or different physical hardships. Um, but he says, this is important because it helps the disciple uh, eventually receive the blessings from the guru. And, and also, and he frames these blessings as being able to see the guru as a Buddha. So just to sort of recap this sort of equation that he's presenting, Sakyapadita is saying, well, it's very important to see the guru as a Buddha, but in order to do so, a disciple needs to undertake this very difficult series of hardships first. Then uh, Sakya Pandita switches to an autobiographical mode. And this brings us right into contemporary 12th century Tibet and the ritual practices at Sakya Monastery. There's one really big difference though, unlike in the narrative citations where the gurus are all engaged in transgressive behavior, Sakya Pandita has the opposite problem. He can only see his uncle, with, you know, and also who is Lama, Drakpa Gelsen as his ordinary uncle. So he's kind of stuck with this, order, this perception of his uncle as an ordinary person. Um, but even as a young man, he says, I asked my uncle Drakpa Gelsen to bestow the guru yoga right so I could see him as a Buddha. So here, this idea of seeing the guru as a Buddha is affected through ritual practice. But it's not so easy at first. Sakya Pandita says, I requested the Lama's consecration for the Guru Yoga rite when I was young. And Drakpa Gautzen doesn't give it to him at first. He says, you have not generated the perception of a Buddha. You perceive your uncle, meaning himself, as an ordinary, you perceive your ordinary uncle. You are unable to undergo hardship for the Lama with body or wealth. And he did not bestow it. So this is uh, Sakya Pandita's conundrum. He only can see his ordinary uncle. Now, Drakta Gautzen continues. These days, what is the use of, even of being beaten and struck by the Lama? And the disciple holds a grudge if the Lama speaks one critical word, or if given a single meal late, one is also angry, even becoming upset in regard to high and low seats. What's the point in discussing practicing hardships for an entire year? So you can almost imagine a sort of uh, precocious Sakya Pandita coming to his uncle with some of these you know, inspiring anecdotes of past disciples being so diligent and um, sort of capable, and he's, you know, kind of dismissed by his uncle and says, you know, some of these actually have a sort of, sounds like someone with a little privilege within the Sakya institution, someone who might, you know, is being served and is getting instructions from the Lama directly and, you know, might be sitting even on a high seat, so might even be, have a more personal note for Sakya Pandita here. But he also, Dr. Gelson also kind of frames this passage by saying these days, Tang Song. So this is one interesting passage for me insofar as we have a Buddhist author being attributed, you know, as saying, well, these days things need to be done a little bit differently. Let's not try to live up to the standards set by these, you know, siddhas from India. Let, we need, might need to do things a little differently here in this time and place. Um, 
sort of incidentally, there's another in Drakpa Gelson's commentary to 50 verses on the Guru, he uses this exact phrase, Tamba uh, Pachiga, quite a bit. It's kind of one of his rhetorical refrains in that in that commentary. So I, I don't know, somehow that gives a nice little flavor of his, uh, the fact that it's kind of also included here in this in the citations is kind of a nice little touch personal touch based on some of his other writings. It seemed like he used that phrase quite a bit. So uh, Drakpa Gelson gives Sakyamandita a little bit of a, an out. He says, well, you can't, you know, let's not even talk about doing hardships for a whole year, but if you want to get the Guru Yoga right, how about serving me or the Lama for the duration of a month as an attendant? So that's his uh, compromise. And just to kind of follow the narrative for a little bit longer, Saka Bandita says, sure enough, a little later on, a frightful sign of death arose. He was feeling sick, and, and coincidentally, or so it seems, Dr. Gelson also was sick at this time. And Saka Bandita forget, forgets about his own troubles and attends to his uncle for without you know, any concern for food and sleep in this period for, for a month, this sort of designated period of time. And he says, you know, in this text, well, it's through that some of my negative deeds were purified through that service to the Lama. And then through granting this Guru Yoga practice, the perception of the master as a Buddha arose. And I saw him as the essence of all Buddhas, Manjushri. So this is how the, there's a lot more to the autobiographical narrative, but this is kind of the gist of it is that Drakpa Gautzen pretends to be sick, you know, which is a sort of well-worn trope in Tibetan literature that the Lama sort of acts in the way that's considered beneficial for the disciple. And, and through, through being able to serve his uncle and Lama for one month, then that is enough that Sakya Pandita can now receive the Guru Yoga practice. And that really affects the desired sort of transformation and how he sees his uncle. In other words, before he saw him as an ordinary uncle, and now he sees him as the Buddha Manjushri. Okay, so at the end of the text, Sakya Pandita presents Guru Yoga as a daily practice. Um, imagine that the Lama is inseparable from deities such as Haivadra or Chakrasambara and so forth. So that part of the text is quite short. Um, so just to sort of recap before moving on, the, you know, Sakya Pandita also introduces a right for imagining the guru as a Buddha and, and then you know, so supplies a lot of narrative material and scriptural citations that, that present it as a traditional rite of sorts or fulfilling this stage of necessary stage of practice um, and affecting this desired trans, transformation and how the Lama is perceived. Um, so he presents the guru yoga right, as fulfilling sort of these traditional goals in Buddhist practice even as he doesn't really account for it, the history of the rite itself. So we can return to that point at the end. Uh, how are we doing for time, Daniel? Okay, we're just perfect. Okay, so the last stage here is Pagmodrupa and the Kagyu preliminary practices. Um, I decided to kind of look at Pagmodrupa because a lot of the iconography is that's used to depict Pagmodrupa is pretty unique, or it seems to introduce a lot of new tropes in Tibetan art in the 12th century, probably early 13th century as well. One particularly 
striking work is this um, Pogmadrupa and Vairochana painting. Um, the art historian Christian Lucenet dates it to maybe late 12th century. It, you know, it's hard to know for sure, but it employs a lot of the standard Indic iconography. But then at the very top, Pogmadrupa is sitting on the top knot or the crown of the Indic Buddha Vairochana. So that's one striking element from this painting. Uh, a second one is the lineage of gurus that's on the top register. Uh, to get a closer look, there's Pagmadrupa and Hume. So in the Kagyu material, in the Kagyu guru yoga, some of, it seems a little more common to actually just imagine the Lama sort of in the manner of a Buddha rather than in a, as a deity, sort of more in the manner of a Buddha. And I think some of the material that surrounds Pagmadrupa kind of speaks to that that shift towards just kind of imagining the Lama as a Buddha in their own right. So here is the Pagmadrupa in Vairochana's top knot. And then in this bottom corner, there is a detail of a devotee sort of looking, gazing upwards at Vairochana, perhaps even at Pagmadrupa. Um, and then from Pagmadrupa's verses on Guru Yoga, we have sort of a liturgical, um, I, I'm a little hesitant to say equivalent, but it's some, you know, kind of some parallels with, with this particular painted tanka. Um, so for example, the sort of imaginative evocation of the lineage assembly, of the lineage of gurus and, and lamas, together with the different Buddhas. And then especially this key point here that the, that the lama is imagined in the form of a Buddha rather than being tied to a particular deity. And then secondly, the, the visualization in this in Padmodrupa's Guru Yoga, right, gets a little bit more complex, but by the end of it, he's, he says, imagine the Lama as Mahavairochana, blazing, you know, emanating blazing light. So it's a little tentative, but I, I feel like there might be some connection between this Guru Yoga passage and the this kind of unique Tanka itself. Um, sort of later works on Padmodrupa do a lot with using his recognizable facial characteristics or his human iconography, especially his bulbous nose and his you know thin black beard. You can see it really well on this uh, statue. And it's mixed with you know traditional stand or standard ways of depicting the Buddha. So we have the urna and he's you know sitting with the earth touching mudra, he's sitting on a lotus throne. So all these tropes are sort of mixing the image of a human, a recognizable Tibetan Lama, with tropes for uh, depicting the Buddha. And that actually, that kind of gets more and more uh, practice in other tankas and later paintings as well of Pagmodrupa. So I'm kind of thinking Pagmodrupa is an interesting case study for looking at how Tibetan Lamas started to become increasingly portrayed as Buddhas themselves, so to speak. Um, just to kind of wrap up, a couple, I'm just going to kind of share a couple short passages from Kagyu Guru Yoga liturgies. Um, and again, these passages sort of exemplify the idea that maybe it's okay just to sort of imagine the Lama Sans deity just kind of in and of themselves. 
And in these passages, the Lama is really imagined as a sort of all-encompassing figure where every, every other object of Buddhist worship sort of gets drawn into the, the singular Lama. So here we have an example of that. The Lama sits on a throne in, in this sort of imaginative guru yoga practice, but then all the lineage Lamas and Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and, and the collection of Yidam deities all sort of dissolve into the body, speech, and mind of that Lama. So there, and another passage uses this term like gathering into one. So like the Lama in these meditation instructions is really imagined as a sort of singular figure that encompasses all earlier objects of worship. So this particular text is attributed to Lama Shrong. Um, imagine that the Lama is in particular the essence of all the Kagyu Lamas. And then there's an interesting kind of passage here where there's kind of a branding happening where he's like, well, in other traditions, they, they rely on Vajrasattva for doing confession practice. But here, let's, we rely on the Lama and acting in that way, if one asks, what qualities of the Tathagata are present? It is said, the Buddhas of the three times, the Dharma, Sangha, and so forth are entirely complete in the Lama. Relying upon the Lama, all these sources of refuge arise. So just to kind of wrap up, I thought it was kind of, kind of a neat example to my, to my mind that the, the Guru Mandala, a rite in which the Guru is imagined as a Vajrasafa, the author, Anubhava Vajra, states that that guru is equal to all the Buddhas and that the guru is the Buddha. You know, that one is also the Dharma and Sangha. So in that context, Anubhava Vajra uses these kinds of doctrinal or scriptural citations to really emphasize that it's perfectly fine to imagine the guru as a Buddha, you know, as Vajrasafa, in other words. So, but then here, in the 12th century Tibet, we see Lama Shang using these very similar ideas, namely that the guru is equal to all the Buddhas, or the Lama is equal to all the Buddhas, and the Lama is, you know, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. He uses these same kind of scriptural ideas to kind of let go of Vajrasattva, so to speak, saying, oh, we don't, don't even need that, you know, this idea of seeing the Lama as an Indic Buddha anymore, so let's you know, the Lama alone is perfectly adequate support for confession practice. Um, so I think that's a kind of, just a kind of uh, representative example of how Buddhist scripture can be used in sort of, even in this case, sort of parallel ways, but also to accomplish different purposes. Um, and finally, I just thought it'd be nice as a sort of starting point for the discussion, what what is the broader significance of the focus on the Tibetan Lama and the Guru Yoga right and other preliminary practices? In other words, who cares? Or what, 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 are, what are the stakes in sort of using Tibetan iconography um, as opposed to Indic iconography in, in ritual practices? And I think you know, one very obvious conclusion is that this was a way for Tibetans to sort of, you know, make Buddhism their own or sort of put a Tibetan face on some of these introductory or preliminary uh, ritual practices that would sort of um, mark sort of the, en the entry point or the participation in sort of these distinct Tibetan traditions that were emerging during this 12th century period. Um, so that's my slideshow, and I'm hoping we can have a nice discussion after that.